Hello and welcome to the What Car Car of the Year podcast. I'm Doug Revolta and joining me to discuss the What Car Awards 2021 and the best new cars on sale is the What Car Reviews team. Will Nightingale, hello. Hello, Doug. John Howell, hello. Hello, Doug. Alan Taylor-Jones, hello. Hi, Doug. Neil Wynn, hello. Hello, Doug. So this is a discussion of the biggest talking points of this year's Car of the Year Awards by us, the people who drive every new car on sale, write the reviews and make the decisions. So for those unfamiliar with the awards, we take every class of car, all 27 of them, from small cars to family SUVs, large electric cars and beyond, and we pick out the very best new models on sale in each category. Of those winners, we then name one overall car of the year. And don't forget, all the cars we mention and many, many more, you can read the reviews on whatcar.com or in our magazine. You can watch our video reviews on the What Car YouTube channel and you can get a great saving on every new car on our website as well. But let's get to it. Our car of the year 2021 is the new Dacia Sandero. So that's where we're going to start. But Will, first off, what does a car need to do to win this overall award? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing that's important to point out is that only cars that have been launched in the last 12 months are eligible for the overall award. So however good a car is, if it's been on sale for two, three, four, five years, then it isn't eligible. As you've already mentioned, the first thing that a car has to do, the first hurdle is to win its individual class. So if it's not good enough to be the best car in in its respective class, then it's not good enough to be considered for the overall winner. Every year we have at least three cars that are eligible for that, for that overall winner. This year we've had quite a few more than that. Some, some really great cars, actually, despite all the, all the other problems in the world. And, yeah, I think we're looking for cars, really, that move the game on. It, that might be, if it's an electric car, that it offers a, a, a range that we haven't seen before. It might be a car that is incredibly well-priced compared paired with its competitors. Uh, it might just be a, a phenomenally good all-rounder, um, but really looking for something that kind of moves things on um, in, in a variety of ways, but also to, to, to obviously win our overall uh, award. A car has to be uh, an extremely good car in a number of key areas. It's not any good to be outstanding in one particular way. So before we discuss the new Sandero, John, can you tell us a bit more about the old Sandero? Because people might be familiar with the name and they might know that it was Britain's cheapest car. But what else was there to that car? Can you tell us a bit more? Yes. So the, the old Sandero actually was is a car I really liked uh, because it was something that was a little bit rough and ready, perhaps. Um, but quite an enjoyable old school experience to drive. However, you there's there's no doubt you were getting what you paid for to a certain extent. It was built off a, a quite an old Clio platform, um, and it wasn't particularly refined. Uh, the ride was quite soft and quite comfortable in some ways, but not very well controlled, and it didn't handle particularly brilliantly. And if you looked at the interior, it was certainly built to a price. So while it was it, there was a, a kind of characterful car, I would say, but but one with some limitations. And of course, that Sandero was a car we were very familiar with at the What Car Awards because it was always picking up the best for value award in the small car class. But Alan, can you explain how we've gone from that old Sandero, which was very cheap, but not much else, to this new one, which has amazingly won this overall Car of the Year award? 
So I think the main thing is that Dacia have gone to the current Clio platform. So it's a much more modern car, which allows you to have um, much more modern equipment. However, if you go for our preferred comfort trim with the TC90 engine, you're looking at spending £11,595, which, to put that into perspective, is about £4,000 less than a basic Ford Fiesta. Um, and just because you're not paying a great deal of money doesn't mean you don't get a lot of kit. You get cruise control, rear parking sensors and a rear camera, auto lights and wipers, um, you get all-round electric windows. Silly as this may sound, there's a fabric strip across the dashboard which does wonders to lift the interior and just make it seem a little more interesting. Okay, so clearly the new Sandero has a lot of the old ethos of the previous model in being amazingly good value, but is there more to it than that, Will? Yeah, absolutely. I think, as John already alluded to, the old car was phenomenally well-priced. But one of the reasons that we recommended it in our Car of the Year awards in previous years, well, the main reason is that it was cheaper than anything else. If you wanted to buy a brand new car and you didn't want to spend a lot of money, it was one of very few options available to you. Uh, and it was a very, very good car for the money. Whereas with the new car, it's genuinely uh, a, a good small car. And you don't have to caveat that with because it's very well priced. Now, is it as good as a Polo? Would it have won if it was... £20,000? Well, no, it wouldn't. Everything has a price. And I think, you know, if you looked at some of the some of the best cars on sale today, a BMW 3 Series, for example, it's, our, it's a multi-time executive car winner at our Car of the Year awards. If that cost £60,000, we wouldn't have given it those awards. And I think what you can say about the Sandero is for £11,500, it, it, it's almost unbelievable what you're getting, what you're getting for the money. Uh, and that wasn't the case with the old car. You sort of looked at it and you went, yeah, that seems about right. You feel like you're getting a car from a bygone era, but you're not paying a lot of money for it. Now you feel like you're getting a modern super mini, not necessarily the best at everything, but a car that is, is very, a very good all-rounder and is phenomenally well-priced. Okay, but Neil, a car this cheap, are there any signs that there have been some corners cut anywhere in the car? It's easy to build a car cheaply. We've seen it over the years with other manufacturers, you know, producing cars at a budget. Uh, that's not something that's particularly tricky to do. And we also see that on the high end. Uh, you know, you can have a car with a price tag of £300,000. You know, you expect it to be good when you're spending that kind of amount of money on a car like that. I think why this Sandero is so impressive, as Will alluded to earlier, is um, you actually jump in it and get behind the wheel and even from the dashboard it feels like something that's been really well designed and thought about of course you know there are some areas where in terms of perhaps refinement you know apollo is a little bit better but you are spending a lot more money for that but i think people will get behind the wheel of this new dacia sandero and genuinely be impressed i don't think you feel like you have to make an excuse for it in any in any way and also obviously dacia is owned by Renault. So can anyone see any problems arising from the fact that you've got the Dacia Sandero, a brilliant car, and incredibly cheap, in the same class as the closely related but more expensive Renault Clio? I think there's been enough of a separation really because the thing about the, the um, Sandero is you get your basics and a few niceties. So you get sat-nav, you get car, um, car play and stuff like that. 
but it's the luxury items you sort of miss out on so little things like you get a soft touch steering wheel rather than a leather steering wheel or you can't get heated seats for instance and i think there are there are people that want a sort of basic method of transportation which the sunbaro is grateful and he's practical good to drive um and does a job but for those who maybe want something that has a bit more tech in it and and feels a little bit more upmarket shall we say then you know the clio is still a, a decent little car and um certainly I, I don't think is really a direct competitor as such well i i personally i would say that with the mainstream cars in that class what the sandero has achieved will make a lot of people think twice about uh, about spending the extra on as you said a ford fiesta or a corsa or or even a clio and i think particularly given the time we're in you know a lot of people are a lot of people have sadly lost their jobs, um, where they've been furloughed, um, and maybe don't have quite as much money to spend and might otherwise be considering a used car. Now they can buy a, a brand new car with a three-year, 60,000-mile warranty and, and not spend a huge amount of money on it. I think when you're looking at cars like the, the Mini and the A1, they cost twice as much to buy. There will always be people who are prepared to spend a load more money on a premium badge. But I think... When you get down to other mainstream brands, do they really have the cachet for people to go, yeah, I think I'm going to spend an extra six or seven thousand pounds on an equivalent um, equivalent car from a, from a perhaps a slightly more upmarket mainstream brand? I, I, I'm not so sure. There will be a lot of people who will, but I think a lot of people might might be uh, might be swayed by the new Sundari who otherwise wouldn't have been. And also, don't forget, it's genuinely outstanding when it comes to practicality. Um, it's one of the biggest cars and bear in mind there's cars in the, in the class like the Honda Jazz which is extremely always been known for being extremely practical um, and we've managed to do our suitcase test and we've got more suitcases in the back of the Dacia we've got six cases in the back which is the best we've fitted in any small car I think um, and then rear seat accommodation is really generous as well so even if you've got uh, four tall adults I mean we're we're a motley crew of various different sizes, but um, uh, we could certainly all fit in in there. And, and uh, I'm six foot three; I can fit in the back of it, no problem at all, with somebody reasonably tall in the back, in the front, in the front seats. So yeah, it's not just about it's 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 also about this is a very good car and an, and actually a, a class leading car in certain areas, as well as it being cheap and generally good all over. And if and in and in areas like that. You're talking about a car that will beat the Renault Clio, so that is something that I guess Renault would need to watch out for. Well, I guess we'll have to keep an eye on the sales figures as they roll in to see how that develops. Now, people who, again, might be familiar with the previous Sandero might know that it didn't necessarily come with the most modern safety features, but is that something that's been addressed with the new model, Will? Absolutely. So uh, this latest model has automatic emergency braking. It has six airbags, and I think... You know, it might not score a five-star NCAP rating, which I think a lot of people will look at. We haven't had the official confirmation of that yet, but our, that's what our insiders tell us. Might look at it and go, mm, that's, that's a bit worrying. The reason it's unlikely to score top five-star rating is because it doesn't get things like adaptive cruise control, which you can get on a lot of cars in that class. The crash protection, the structure of the car, is actually very good. As we've already said, it's based on the latest Renault Clio. So this is a car that you don't really have to go, oh, I've got to really sacrifice safety for the, for the low price. 
Okay, well that is reassuring to know as well. So congratulations to Dacia and the Sandero, which has been named as our overall car of the year. Fantastic achievement for the car and a really brilliant product that's been created. But the Sandero did fight off tough competition this year for the overall car of the year award from other class winners. And one of the closest competitors was something completely different in the BMW 4 Series. Now, BMW have been making some fairly controversially designed cars of late, and the 4 Series is definitely no different. So there was a lot of debate about how this car looked when it was first unveiled. So just as a quick unscientific test, do you like the looks? Yes or no? John? I don't hate it. It, it, it does actually, I don't know if anybody's familiar with like old BMWs, like the 2002. It kind of has a little bit of the upright vertical grills of that, albeit on like a shoved into a photocopier times a thousand. If you get the car with a black grill, it looks a lot more, it becomes much more subtle and not so in your face. Okay, Alan, can you give me an actual yes or no rather than a John Howell paragraph yes? No, it looks like an angry Bugs Bunny like you've stolen his carrots. Neil? No, I think the proportions are, are all off and I don't think it's just the grill really. I think, you know, if you look at the rear of the car, there's just so much metal work above the rear wheel. It just, it doesn't work for me. But I think somebody might have mentioned it earlier, or we might have even put it in copy uh, if you read our review on the website that uh, it's not the first time that BMW has designed a car that's been controversial, but over the years has for some reason uh, got better looking as time goes on. And, and now we miss all the designs from Chris Bangle in that era. So who knows? It might I might warm to it over time. Will, yes or no? Yes, I, I've already started to warm to it. And I have to admit, when I first saw the, the pictures, I was just thinking the same as a lot of other people, you know, what the hell have they done? But recently looking at it, actually driving the car, spending some time with it, and you see it, you know, on your driveway or out on our test track. And I think, as, as John said, as long as you go for a, a relatively dark colour, so it doesn't look, the, the grill doesn't stand out quite so much. I think, yes, I think it looks quite good. So you're saying as long as you can't see it, then it looks great. Specify it in a certain way uh, to make the grill look less obvious, then I think it looks pretty good. Okay, so clearly the looks are very polarizing, but the rest of the car shouldn't be because it is properly fantastic. Now, as we said, this was in the running for winning the overall Car of the Year award, and it was named as the best coupe that you could buy. So John, can you explain exactly what is so good about this car? Yeah, I mean, the, the 4 Series was actually really one of my top contenders for car of the year. Uh, and it's it's a car, the 3 Series, as we know, is, is an extremely good car. 3 Series has been an award winner now um, for a couple of years. And obviously this car's based on that, but with the dial turned up a little bit in terms of the things that we expect from BMW, like the handling and the way, you know, the, way the car drives and excites. So it's got slightly stiffer suspension than the 3 Series different springs and, and uh, a different setup to make it handle that a bit more sharply. And, and it really, it's, it's one of those cars that as a road tester, you just enjoy very much experiencing because some cars you get into and you take time to warm up to, uh, you know, you start, you, you have to sort of get used to the car to realize what, what's good about it. But the four series is one of those cars I got in and immediately I was like thinking, this is an extremely and deeply impressive car. And it just has that feeling of some engineers have 
really gone to town on this and made a, you know an exceptional car. I mean, we all love this car, don't we? So, Alan, do you are you a fan? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the looks are code rising, but you know, as an estate agent will say to you, you can't see the outside when you're inside. And you know, the interior is shared with the three series, so the quality is very good. Um, I personally, don't have a problem with them being very similar because you know it's a well laid out interior with great infotainment system, arguably the best in the business. Um, certainly feels. Uh, suitable in a, a £40,000 car um, and it's also great that there's such a wide range of engines so there's the traditional sort of uh, two litre diesel that would have been popular over the years but there's a, also a two litre petrol um, which seems uh, more of the, the current time uh, than the diesel um, but don't forget there's also the M440i which is a, a fantastic turbocharged straight six um, performance car um, that handle really, really highlights how well the car handles and um, is terrific fun. And of course, you do make a good point there, Alan. We gave the Coupe award to the 420i, but in the performance car class, it was that M440i, which was named as the best value performance car that you can buy. So basically, whatever engine you end up going for in the 4 Series, you're getting a properly fantastic car. Now, do we think that BMW right now is the best premium manufacturer because as much as they've been designing quite controversial looking cars they've had hit after hit after hit and really well engineered products all coming one after the other. You can't necessarily say the same of other manufacturers and I'm thinking Mercedes and Audi here so are BMW the best of premium manufacturers right now? Yeah, I could get behind that idea. I think in a way it's it's a shame that BMW is making so many headlines at the minute for their exterior design. Uh, you know, as we said earlier, the 4 Series is, you know, quite divisive. But before that as well, the BMW X7, and we actually ran one as a long-termer, that kind of kicked off this big grill design that BMW has really got behind. And that seems to be dominating the conversation around BMW on social media at the minute. And it's a shame because I think it's pulling away from the fact, as John mentioned, that they really are putting so much effort into the design and the engineering behind the cars. I think if you, you know, get behind the wheel of a Mercedes at the moment or even an Audi, there's also quite a disparity between different models in the lineup, whereas, you know, every 4 Series you drive, uh, be it the 440 or the 420D, they all feel like they've been really well engineered and are fit for purpose. Uh, and I think the same can be said for every model actually in BMW's lineup at the minute. They're really on a roll. I guess as well it's appropriate to mention the X7 as you do there because with that kick-starting this kind of menacing and polarizing design across BMW models, that itself is an absolutely fantastic car objectively. You know, from all the areas that you're able to measure, it's a brilliant car, even though the looks might not appeal to everyone. And I guess as well, BMW are probably thinking that actually if lots of people are talking about their products, then maybe they're not so fussed that some of those people are gonna be expressing negative views on how they're designed. They're probably just happy that people are talking about them. Is it worth pointing out as well, just that um, if you actually go onto our website or you pick up the magazine, 
we rarely actually talk about styling because it is so subjective. Automotive journalists have a certain view towards the design of certain cars, but you know the public, as we've seen, also have have their own view. And I think um, that big grill design might actually prove to be popular. So yeah, we'll just see how it turns out. Indeed. That's it for part one. Coming up in part two, we're talking more contenders for the overall Car of the Year award and some very popular EVs. But before that, don't forget, it's whatcar.com to read our reviews and get money off your next new car. Insurance can be tricky to navigate, so let's make things clearer, shall we? ALA Insurance is one of the largest independent providers of GAP, warranty and other specialist insurance products for new and used cars. For instant quotes and information on the best policy for you, please visit ala.co.uk or call one of our friendly advisors for impartial advice. ALA Insurance, protecting your investment. Welcome back. Now, electric cars have been gaining huge popularity over the last couple of years. So the EV winners that we've been handing out at our Car of the Year Awards are obviously going to be of particular interest. And this year, our small electric car of the year is the all-new VW ID3, which VW says is one of its three most significant new car launches of all time. So, Neil, tell us about it and why exactly is it so important? It's a pretty significant car for VW, as you said earlier. You know, the the three in ID3 um, is supposed to allude to that it's wanting to emulate, you know, the Beetle and the Golf and the success of those cars, which means VW will want it to sell in the millions globally per year. Um, so just for that reason, it's significant. And it marks VW's move towards electric cars, which you could argue they've been a little bit slow in entering. You know, we've had things like the E-ARP and the E-Golf, um, and they were based on pre-existing cars and their ranges weren't that great. They were quite expensive. So it'd be hard to call them mass production cars. Uh, whereas the ID3 is the first car VW's really got behind and they want to see sell on a massive scale. And because of that, they've put a lot of money into it. You know, it's based on its own bespoke platform, uh, which shows they've put massive investment into the project. And I think it's also interesting for us because we can get an idea already of where VW is going to go with this idea. The ID3 is just one car in a line of new ID products. I think the ID4 SUV is just going to be around the corner and there's hints for saloon. So, yeah, this is a, a massively significant car for VW and, you know, it needs to be a success. Indeed, it does. And if you go for the Pro Performance Life model, which is our favourite ID3, then you get an electric car with a range of 263 miles from a full charge. And with the government grant, it costs just under £30,000. But Will, what does it do to beat the other electric car competitors in its class? Just to clarify, we define a small electric car as one that is four and a half metres or shorter in length. So that's why so you might be looking at the ID3 and going, well, is it that small? Because it's in the same class as a Fiat 500, but that is how we separate small and large. Um, so indirectly, the ID3 was up against, as I say, the 500, Honda e, Mini Electric. But the closest cars that it had to beat were the new Citroen EC4 and the Kia e-Nero. I know that's a slightly more SUV-shaped car, but that's, uh, that's what we put it up against. And we actually group tested those cars it won quite convincingly, actually. I think 
where if you look at the, the the top of the range it's a little bit close to the model 3 for my liking which has an even longer range and obviously you've got tesla's charging infrastructure and we know it's uh, it's actually a fantastic car a fantastic all-rounder if you go down towards our favorite the low end of the uh, the id3 lineup uh, particularly our favorite life model it costs less than thirty thousand pounds after a grant and for that money the range that you're getting it's a really good car to drive as well i think that's important to point out it's practical um and it's 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 priced well it, it stacks up well on pcp finance the depreciation is predicted to be 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 slow so it won that uh group test quite quite easily Yes, you might find yourself choosing, um, wanting to go for a smaller car. You know, the Renault Zoe has a similarly long range, and that's even cheaper. And if you don't need that range, then there are there are plenty of other cars like the Fiat 500 that I, that I just mentioned that are very good as well. But the ID3 does offer something to a lot of buyers that might genuinely persuade them to go electric. Do you think it's fair to say though that the ID3 doesn't completely change the game, and maybe that's why? It's one of the reasons it didn't win the overall Car of the Year award because it doesn't necessarily do anything dramatically different from the EVs that are available right now anyway. I, th I think that's important to point out that, that why it didn't win the overall award, it won the, the category, which is you know, means it's a very good car and I'm not trying to take anything away from it. But has it really changed the game in the, in the wider electric car field? I'm not sure that it has really. It doesn't have the charging infrastructure that obviously Tesla has. Um, it just offers a very good range for uh, for the price, and as I said, it's good to drive. It's it's a good. Um, it, it I think actually there are if it if it were were better in a couple of key areas, it might have won the overall award. Um, and I'm really talking about interior quality here uh, and infotainment. So the interior of the ID3, it's mostly hard plastics. It doesn't feel particularly premium, and I think that's that's a disappointment, particularly. And we've come to expect really good interiors from VW over the years. But I think the infotainment system, you know, personally, I think VW needs to needs to go back to square one with, with it. I think uh, we've seen it in the Golf. There are some really big usability issues with it, um, quite a lot of software bugs in there as well. And I just think that, you know, really, touchscreens, we've, we've not been a fan of them. Uh, as a as a as a title for quite a few years because they 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 are quite distracting. But if you're going to have a touchscreen, you need to have a good interface. Uh, and I think that's where that's something that the ID3 and the latest Golf as well really really let the car down. But I don't want to sound too negative because it has won our overall award of uh, overall okay. electric car award. Obviously, I just think it's important to point out that there are a couple of areas with that car that if it weren't for those, then we could be talking about an overall car of the year yeah and i would add to that i think actually um get, to give it a bit of praise i think vw has done a good job of um walking this kind of tightrope between producing a car that feels futuristic um a bit like a bmw i3 you know it's a bespoke platform so it's got quite a long wheelbase it's got short overhangs uh so they can give it more interior space and yet it doesn't feel too far away from what VW has done before. If you're a golf owner and you get in an ID3 or have a look around it, it's not going to feel like this alien product, uh, which I think is important because I think there's going to be a lot of crossover from people who own golfs currently going into showrooms and having a look. This potentially could be their first electric car. And I think that's how VW wants to market it as well. 
Now, another impressive new electric car this year, and also in with a shout for the overall award, was the new Fiat 500 electric. And that was named as the best small electric car for the city, but it was the 500 electric cabrio which was named as the overall best convertible. So, Alan, tell us about the electric 500, and actually maybe starting with the fuel-powered 500 that came before it, which was enormously successful from a sales perspective, but never actually deemed to be that good by us? So the the old Fiat 500C was a bit like the Mrs. Brown's boys of the car world in that it was wildly popular, but fairly terrible. Um, so it was- It's John you know, Howe's favorite program, how dare you? <laughs> I had heard this. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it was cheap for a convertible. Um, so certainly undercut the, the Mini Cabriolet in, in many guises. But being small, it was tiny inside. Um, the driving position was a bit like a pipe organ in that you felt sort of perched over the pedals um, with the steering wheel coming at you at a funny angle. Um, interior quality was not great um, and the, neither was the driving experience. So uh, something that, that was fun, that was funky, but actually when it came down to it, not all that great. However, the new Fiat 500 Cabrio is a whole new platform. So they haven't just taken the old car, stuck a load of Duracells up it and left it at that. So um, it's slightly bigger than before, um, but don't expect this to have tons of rear seat space. This is still a two seater with a couple of occasional rear seats that you might want to put children or people you don't like in. All versions of the 500 Cabriolet get a 42 kilowatt hour battery, which gives a range of up to 188 miles. Now that's pretty good for small electric cars, so certainly up on the Mini Electric, on the Honda E, and not actually that far behind a, a Peugeot um, E208 either. Um, but it also gets 117 horsepower, which is good for a claimed 0-60 time of about nine seconds, which is okay. However, the 500 electric in our hands did 0-60 in eight seconds, which actually makes it pretty punchy. And because all that power is available instantly, it actually feels quicker than that around town. Uh, because of its small size, it's compact, it's easy to manoeuvre. Um, so, you know, parking isn't a problem, getting it into tight spaces isn't a problem. Um, and it's, you know, the steering's light, um, but it's precise, you can easily place it. And it's actually more comfortable than a, a lot of other small cars out there. So all in all, a very impressive package. And people are still going to love how it looks, right? So obviously one of the big successes of the old 500 was giving it that iconic styling that made it instantly recognisable on the road. And they've still managed to capture that with this electric makeover, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, you could, you could on that, cover all of the badges, have it say 500 nowhere, look at it immediately and think that's a Fiat 500. So it's, it's a sort of clever reinterpretation. So it's kind of slightly um, uh, less upright and uh, less blobby than before, a, a little leaner, um, but yeah, unmistakably a 500, that, that silhouette is undoubtedly there. Now, some people might be a little confused as to us naming the electric 500 Cabrio as the best convertible that you can buy. So Will, can you just clear that up? Well, I think if we're being honest that the competition in the convertible class is, is slightly less fierce than it is in the, the, the wider small electric car class. So that has given the 500 uh, an advantage there. It's really competing against 
the 500C, which is, as Alan already mentioned, a, a hybrid and and the mini convertible. Uh, but I think it's it's a it's a it's a very good car. And as although the 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 roof pillars and the uh, the outside of the roof remain in place when you fold the, the the roof down, it sort of concertinas down onto the boot lid. It still gives a proper open air experience, and I think that extra rigidity actually helps the car it doesn't feel like you're a lot of convertibles they feel quite wobbly you can you know the typical rear view mirror wobbling around when you're going when you're going over bumpy roads that that doesn't really happen in the fear and i think it's 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 a pretty good car dynamically for the class because of that okay so another electrified car next but it's a plug-in hybrid the octavia estate iv is our plug-in hybrid of the year now We've seen the quality and the quantity of pure EVs rise in recent years. But John, is the same happening with plug-in hybrids? And also, why does this Octavia stand out? There's definitely a legacy with plug-in hybrids where you, uh, you can often have a good car and then they put a battery in it and a motor in it as well as the regular engine. And you're like, oh, here's, here's a car that's not going to be as good to drive and as, as the regular cars. But, um, but I do think they are moving, they're getting better and better and better. Um, like the issues that we tended to focus on were often they had terrible brake pedals that you, you they were like on off switches that uh, things like that are improving. And this is one area, for example, where the Octavia scores well. It's, it's, it's a really, it just feels fairly ordinary to drive. And I mean that in a good way. It doesn't feel exceptional. You don't feel like you're having to modulate your driving or to tailor your driving to driving this, this plug-in hybrid. Um, it's quick because that's the benefit of plug-in hybrids. They tend to have punchy petrol engines with, uh, with the ad added uh, boost of an electric motor. Um, it's quiet, obviously, when you're running in electric-only mode. Um, and I think with the Octavia, there's some key elements that mean that you don't lose out perhaps as much as you would do in, in other plug-in hybrid cars, um, maybe at the sportier end of the spectrum, for example, because and Octavius have never, even Skoda would say, Octavius have never been designed to be the, the uh, sharpest cars to drive. They're more about relaxed cruising and, uh, and, and um, comfort to a certain extent. And I think because of the extra weight of the battery, you do, you do notice it a bit, but because that's not the key element of the car's uh, repertoire, the handling dynamics, you don't sit there and feel like you're missing out too much. And then another element that causes problems with plug-in hybrids is where you end up losing some space, usually in the boot because of the battery pack. Whereas, whereas this car, again, you know, there is a slight difference, but it's very, very minor. Um, so you've got all the practicality benefits that you would normally have. So it's, it's, that's why I think it's an excellent car. And let's not forget as well that we're talking about a plug-in hybrid with an electric range of 41 miles officially. And on top of that, you've got this official fuel economy of 282.5 miles per gallon. But obviously we know that's rubbish. You're never going to achieve that. Or maybe you might over one mile of driving with a fully charged battery, but still you won't reach those ridiculous levels of fuel economy, but especially on short journeys, it's going to be a fuel-efficient car. And by the way, Doug, you mentioned about the Octavia's range there. You're unlikely to get the official range if you, unless you drive, particularly like Alan, very, very daintily. But um, uh, don't forget, though, if you're a company car driver, and this is one of the key reasons for buying these FEVs, after all, is that 
because it's the, the company car tax is measured on CO2 emissions and range, the length of the electric range, and because it's so good on the Octavia, that's why it's actually in the 6% tax bracket, whereas some of its rivals, even like the Golf GTE, uh, end up in the 10% bracket because their range isn't as good. So it, it's a really cheap company car. And although it might be a little bit more expensive, we'd still recommend if you're a private buyer on, uh, buying on PCP, uh, say a 1.5 TSI engine, um, it's for company, yeah, that's where it's a really exceptional deal as a company car. Yes, indeed, very good point. And let's also give a shout out to the closely related Seat Leon, which was named as the best family car. But Will, SUVs are so popular, interest in EVs is skyrocketing. Family hatchbacks with internal combustion engines have long been massive sellers, but are we seeing a change in that? And also, why is the Leon so good? Well, the short answer is I think, yeah, we are we are already seeing a change uh, and more people are buying SUVs. That's been the case for years. There's just more choice out there than there was you know, even 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago. But I think it's important to to remember that if you look at the sales figures for last year, the Golf was the third best-selling car, the Focus was the fourth, and the A-Class was the fifth. Now, they are very much traditional family, what we would define as family cars. That is conventional uh mid-sized hatchbacks if you like the leon is we think the best of those i think if you look at the previous generation leon it was a very good car but the a3 and the golf and the octavia we rated them all above that the octavia for practicality reasons above anything else and price the golf because dynamically it was superior and the a3 because of that but also the interior and the infotainment side of things whereas now the Leon has actually grown in size slightly. So it has fractionally more rear space than a Skoda Octavia. And I think that might surprise a lot of people. It does have a slightly smaller boot, but it's still plenty big enough for most people. It's very good to drive. And it is also, if you go for the right version, the 1.5-130 FR is extremely well-priced as well. And you get a lot of equipment. So I think that's why we've really voted the Leon above not only its other MQB-related cars, and by that I mean the other VW Group cars on the same platform, but also other really good cars in that class, like the Ford Focus. And to round off this discussion of those cars that were in with a shout of winning the overall Car of the Year award, we're going to talk about one that was actually probably one of the biggest shocks of the year, and that's the new Kia Sorento, which has been named as the best large SUV. So, Will, can you tell us a bit about the car? Well, I think the Kia Sorento has always offered a huge amount of space for the money, but in other areas, particularly refinement, uh, driver appeal and interior quality, it has sacrificed some of those areas for that low price and that space. Whereas now, yes, the price has gone up a little bit, but you get a really nice interior, you get fantastic refinement. And obviously there's a hybrid version as well that did reasonably well in our real world MPG tests. So overall, I think you're getting a, a really well-rounded car now. You're not just looking at the, the Sorento and going, yes, it's a very big SUV that's that's very well-priced. You're actually looking at it at going, it is a, a very good large SUV full stop, and it happens to be much cheaper than the premium brand alternatives. It's also worth pointing out that it's a proper seven-seater. Some of its rivals, even cars like the Land Rover Discovery Sport and the 5008, yes, they are available with seven seats or have them as standard, but putting adults in the third row it's a, it's a bit of a squeeze with the Sorento I'm just over six foot and I would fit in the back 
absolutely fine. And I think that's that's pretty compelling. Compelling indeed. That's it for part two. Coming up in part three, we're talking hot hatches, performance cars, coronavirus, and what's coming out in the next 12 months. Our headline sponsor for the Wattcar Awards this year is ALA Insurance, one of the largest independent providers of gap, warranty and other specialist insurance products for new and used cars. Insurance can be tricky to navigate and they make it just that bit easier. For instant quotes and information on the best policy for you, you can visit ala.co.uk or give one of their friendly advisors a call on 01653 916 304. ALA Insurance, protecting your investment. Welcome back. So now we're talking hot hatches. And this year we had a new winner. We had the Toyota Yaris GR, which was named Hot Hatch of the Year. So Neil, can you explain how a Yaris won this award? Yeah, so um, I guess the best place to start is... uh, Yeah, it's a Yaris, but it's not any Yaris. So... Basically, we're quite an excitable bunch, I think, automotive journalists, and nothing gets us more excited than the word homologation. And basically what that means is, it's a bit technical, but for a car company to go rallying, they need to build a certain number of road cars to homologate the car, basically, uh, to go racing. And it's not done very often anymore. Usually manufacturers will just pick, VW will just pick a normal Polo. But that usually means that the car's a bit compromised when you go racing. But Toyota's done something that I don't think a manufacturer's done for the last kind of 10 or 20 years, which is they've invested a lot of money into building a hot hatch that is not compromised really in any way. Uh, It's completely different from the standard Yaris. And that's to make sure uh, it performs well when they go rallying with it. And um, I think if there's one thing I've learned about doing this job, it's that race teams, when they've been involved in putting a road car together, they they tend to know what they're doing when they're setting it up. And uh, this Yaris just, well, I think it blew us all away really when we got behind the wheel. I certainly saw a few reviews coming out from other titles and I was perhaps a little bit skeptical because people were making out that it was the kind of like the next coming. But when we went up to our testing grounds at uh, Millbrook Proving Grounds and uh, took it onto the outer handling, I don't think I've seen the whole team have bigger smiles across all of our faces. Um, It just, from its small dimensions to its three-cylinder engine, which is it's the most powerful three-cylinder engine that's ever been put in a road car. It's just this small little ball of energy. It's uh, about the same size as a Fiesta ST. And yet, when we strapped our timing gear on it, because it's all-wheel drive, it managed to do 0 to 62 miles an hour in, I think it was uh, 4.6 seconds, which I had to check because even now that seems kind of bonkers for a car that of that price as well when it's it, it's kind of just over thirty thousand pounds we can go into a bit more detail about what pack you need to pick for it and things like that but for a car that's around that price point um that's the kind of performance we'd be expecting from you know an audi s3 which is you know well over forty thousand pounds so um yeah just as you can tell i'm a bit animated about it because it's such an exciting car and the other thing to bear in mind with the yaris gr is that winning this award this year it's had probably the toughest competitor of any other car that we've given an award to 
in that it's beaten the Civic Type R, which for a few years now we've been exclaiming as one of the greatest hot hatches of all time. So John, why is the Civic Type R so good? And what are the differences between the Yaris and the Civic? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I think maybe I, I'm a good person to ask that question to, Doug, uh, because it's a. These are always often there's a lot of argument on the what car team about uh, different cars, but we come to a consensus, and, and uh, you know, there's no doubt that both these, which the, the Honda and the Toyota, are excellent hot hatchbacks, and anybody that buys either of them are going to have a really good time. Um, but uh, if it comes down to personal opinions, my vote went to the to the Type R uh, because I still think it's an awesome car and I, and it suits. I think because a lot a lot of the time with these cars, it's about what suits your driving style, what ticks your boxes. Um, you know, not everyone is going to uh, have the same um, find the same things float their boat. And for me, there's something about the the, the Type R that is it's it's like. If the, if the Yaris is the rally car, the Type R is the touring car. It's the sort of it's the racing car of the two uh, for the for the circuit. It's so beautifully balanced. It's, it's um, I think it's got like a, a I like the, the the simplicity of the car. There's no thrills to the way it generates its uh, it no, its engine noise. It just sounds like a uh, a regular four cylinder that's highly turbocharged and, and with lots of power. It's still awesomely quick. It doesn't match up on the 0 60 times because it's front wheel drive. So it loses a bit to begin with, but it's still awesomely quick once it's above, say, 30 miles an hour. It's got wonderful gearbox. Um, it's really, and it, it's in terms of a hot hatch, it's everything you want because hot hatches are meant to be livable. And apart from the looks, which I think most people, even I would agree, aren't livable with the Type R. The, uh, the ride comfort, the size of the car, the, the amount of people you, and, and luggage you can carry, I just think it's an all, awesome all-round package, um, but mainly because I just love the way it drives. Okay, moving on now to a potentially controversial one as we go to the performance car class, and we've given the overall award to an electric car, but it's not a Renault Zoe, it's the Porsche Taycan 4S. So, Will, what were the other contenders that it was up against? And also, does the Taycan show that there's a lot to be excited about in an EV future, even for hardcore petrol heads? Well, to answer your second question first, yes, it absolutely does. And I think I, I did the original launch for that car, the international launch. And I have to admit, even though Porsche have a history of getting things spot on, building some fantastic driver's cars, I, I, I was dubious about how brilliant a driver's car it is and for those who don't really understand the uh the flaws of electric cars inherently is that they have to carry around a very heavy battery and that's not a good thing when it comes to handling um and and driver enjoyment really and i think the way that porsche has managed to disguise that weight and make the Taycan truly not just for an electric car you know, previously we'd been saying, well, a Tesla Model 3 is very good to drive for an electric car. But really, if you compare it to, against the, the the best petrol petrol rivals, yeah, it's not it's not that outstanding, really. Whereas the Taycan really, really is. It's not just about going around a corner really quickly and generating a lot of G-force. It's about having, giving you an enjoyable experience in the process. Steers beautifully. The, the 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 way it delivers its power, the way you can meter that that power through the through the electric motors is, is absolutely fantastic. I think 
we've got you've got three versions to choose from at the moment you've got the entry level 4s we think that's all you really need it's still really really quick but if you do want more power you've got a turbo and a turbo s the turbo s will do not 60 in in less than three seconds so this is a this is a car that for the first time you can say without caveat this is a fantastic driver's car but it's also a very good car in other respects it's also a great performance car because it's not all about driving thrills. It has a fantastic interior. It's reasonably practical. And although it's not cheap, if you look at the estimated depreciation, uh, you look at the PCP costs, and particularly for a company car driver, because of course it's an electric car, it is, it is very cheap. In answer to your first question about what rivals it had to be, this year, actually, Mercedes has made several t tweaks to the C63 over the years. We think that now just has the edge over the Julia Quadrifoglio, which has won the Performance Car Award for the last two or three years. Very close run thing, um, but I think if you did want a petrol car still, you're not going to have the chance to buy a V8 saloon for that many more years. Um, I think that the C63 is still a, still a fantastic buy. And as we mentioned at the start of this podcast, the BMW M440i, if you want to spend a little bit less money, it's just over £50,000 for the performance you get. That'll do 0 60 in less than five seconds. It's a, it's a great thing to drive. So it's, it's not all about electric cars. I just think with a Taycan, it really moves the game on. If for electric cars, it proves that we don't have to be worried about having fun uh, in the future, in, in an electric future. I guess that's kind of a good point to take stock of where we are with electric cars right now. So we saw a huge boost in electric car sales last year in 2020, surprisingly. Now, many more manufacturers are offering electric cars, many more than even just a few years ago. And also, crucially, the company car tax changes in spring last year also massively helped plug-in hybrids and pure EVs. But they're all still a tiny part of the market overall, aren't they, even if they're growing quickly? Well, yes, as a whole, but I think it's important to, to if you look at the SMT registration figures from last month, the Model 3 was the best-selling car in the UK. Now, OK, we're in a slightly weird time at the moment. Um, car sales are down massively, and obviously there's, a, there's an incentive for people buying new cars to buy electric cars, but they sold nearly 6,000 Model 3s just last month. And the ID3 was the fourth best-selling car in the UK last month. So I think yes, they are small as a as a whole still, but you know you've got some pretty pretty punchy sellers in there as well now. And John, if people are listening to this and debating whether they'd like to go out and get an electric car as their next new car, do you think now is the time they should go out and get one? Just make sure that your lifestyle fits the car. So. While most people do very small commutes, I think the average in the UK is about 20, 25 mile commute every day. Um, I mean, there's not an electric car on sale that won't do that comfortably. Uh, so, so for most people, it will, they will work. But if you do then go on longer trips, uh, even if it's just a couple of times a year for on holiday, then think about, are you gonna be able to use that if this is gonna be your only car? Um, this is where one of the benefits of Tesla um, the rest of the infrastructure for other electric cars is improving, but very slowly. But Tesla's infrastructure, which is one of the reasons why the Model 3, for example, is, is a, a big winner for us, is that their infrastructure is so good that you can stop off pretty much anywhere around the country and have a quick charge and off you go again. And you've also obviously got a long range anyway. 
And I guess if we're talking buying trends, then we should also mention the massive continuing downturn in diesel sales. Now, at our awards this year, we've named quite a lot of diesels as winners. So clearly, there are still some very good cars being made with diesel engines. Alan, should people still be buying diesels? I think it entirely depends on your circumstances, really, because diesels are arguably better now than they've ever been. Um, so they have um, more emissions regulations, filters. So not only do they produce um, usually lower carbon emissions than a petrol engine, um, but they're also put, uh, producing very small amounts of particulates and other nasty stuff as well. Um, but by the same token, diesels are more expensive to buy than petrols. So if you're doing less than, say, 12,000, 15,000 miles a year, there really is very little point going for a diesel um, unless there's a company car tax incentive, for instance. Um, it's really very high mileage drivers. But there are other things to think about as well. So um, because diesels aren't quite uh, in as much demand as they were, certainly nowhere near the demand they were, um, I, you generally find that diesels get a little bit more of a discount um, on our new car buying service. Um, although the flip side of that is that they also depreciate a little bit quicker as well. It all very much depends on, on your circumstances. Okay, so now I guess we should really discuss the elephant in the room, which is the coronavirus, and just spend a bit of time explaining what impact it's had on the industry. Um, obviously, an enormous downturn in sales, which makes for pretty sobering reading for anyone in the automotive industry. And also how the sector has responded. So, John, can you tell us what exactly has happened? Yeah, obviously, coronavirus is a bolt out of the blue for everyone, whether you're on a personal level or a business or the car industry or any industry, it's uh, it's kind of really screwed everything for everyone, isn't it? Um, the way uh, the first lockdown was so severe, more severe than any of the more recent ones up to date, um, and I th you know, obviously that just prevented any showrooms from operating and, and everything just shut down completely. There was a lot of pent up demand then when things started to, to ease off and people wanted to buy cars but, but hadn't been able to. So that's led to uh, or dealers moving to a more sort of internet savvy uh, click and collect style uh, way of, of uh, buying a car. And I think actually, to be fair, that's probably moved the game on a little bit in an area where things should have been developing more in that, that line before coronavirus. Coronavirus has tipped the car industry into, into a slightly more modern way of doing things. And of course, it's not just the consumers and manufacturers that have been affected, but us as well, you know, trying to test cars, produce a magazine. Will, maybe we should try and explain how difficult the past year has been for us editorially as well. <laughs> well, yeah. I, it it's um it's been a challenge let's let's say say that at the very least it's i think obviously as john said during the first lockdown we weren't able to test at all uh there was a we needed clarification from the government whether or not we were considered uh a, a key industry and i think also on top of that you know there's a there's a health and safety consideration you know we weren't prepared for this virus really no one was and it took us a while to work out exactly how we were going to deal with it. So, you know, we've got systems in place now where we have to log every time we're in the car so that everyone knows um, who can be asked to self-isolate if, luckily, touch some fake wood here. Uh, no one has tested positive on the team for, for COVID yet. 
But if that does happen, then we need to be in a position to be able to uh, tell people to self-isolate who have also been in that car. Uh, we've also got uh, health and safety procedures in place in terms of sanitizing cars between different people driving them. We've also got restriction on the number of people driving cars. So all in all, it has very much complicated and already logistically very challenging job. Um, but obviously there were people who are far worse off than us, so I'm not trying to complain. Yeah, we'll continue to do what we can. And, and I think at the moment, people who uh, aren't able to test drive cars, they they are relying on our reviews even more than they might usually do that. And we'll we'll do the best we can over the next uh, next few months, certainly until things start to return to normal to, to make sure we keep doing that. Okay, that's enough about 2020, isn't it? So now let's look forward to the next 12 months and talk about some of the new cars that are going to be arriving in that time. And we'll start with the winner of the What Car Reader Award. So this is an award voted for by our readers on the car they're most looking forward to seeing in the next year. And the winner is the Alfa Romeo Tonale, which was first shown as a concept at the Geneva Motor Show in 2019. And it's an SUV that's actually smaller than the Stelvio, which is currently on sale. And it will essentially become the entry point into the Alfa lineup once the Giulietta goes off sale. So Alan, is this a surprising choice and does it have a good chance of being decent? Well, I, I suppose at the moment, we've only really got a few pictures of the contact car and a few spy pics as well to go on. So at first glance, it looks fantastic. So it's got the, the big uh, centrally mounted alpha grill that forces the, the number plate to one side. Um, very aggressive headlights and although we're likely to see it toned down for production if the Salvio is anything to go by then it should be a, a pretty good looking thing um, the question will be whether it's actually any good to drive so there are elements with the car that are shared with the Jeep Renegade um, including the promise of a plug-in hybrid system um, however although we've yet to drive a plug-in hybrid Jeep Renegade um, normal versions of the Renegade aren't our favourite small SUV. Um, so it's really going to be a case of can Alpha put the work in, do the engineering and make it drive as well as it looks really. Um, and then assuming there's a, a good interior, again, looks fantastic, but if the quality is there um, and the functionality is there, then who knows, we might have a new class leader. Okay, sounds interesting. And also we should have a fairly bumper year of new cars because obviously the past 12 months has seen lots of delays and postponements to new car launches. And hopefully we can see a few of those moved into the forthcoming year. So has anyone got any cars that they're particularly looking out for coming up? Well, I, th I think the Enyaq is one that I'm personally looking forward to. We were at one stage going to get hold of it for our cardio awards judging before the end of November. Um, but obviously, understandably, coronavirus delays pushed the, the launch of that car back. But I've heard good things about it. It, it looks good. It stacks up on range. It stacks up on price. It, it's very nice inside. So I, that's the one I think could, could, uh, could make a real difference in, in the electric car class. Well, I, I think if we're being utterly sensible in that most what car of ways, you, you can't bet against the new Nissan Qashqai. Uh, I mean, it's a car that came along and, and really revolutionized the, uh, the family car segment, offering a raised driving position with, um, you know, decent driving experience as well. So the current one has been around a little while, um, but a whole new car um, with a fresh interior, fresh exterior and some fresh engines. Who knows, that could, um, that could take the family SUV class by storm. 
Okay, come on Neil, we've had a very what car Skoda Enyaq EV and a very what car Nissan Qashqai, but what are you looking forward to driving next year? Yeah, perhaps uh, not being quite so sensible. Um, I'm really looking forward to driving the new M3 and M4 because as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, BMW is on a roll at the moment for producing well-engineered cars. But actually, the last generation M4, when it first came out, um, and in M3 four-door form, it, it wasn't the most rounded thing. It was quite spiky to drive on the limits. Um, and it took a long time for BMW to get that car right, basically. The final edition of that car, which was the CS, was very expensive. And finally, it was a, a really rewarding thing to drive. But it was out of the reach of of most people, even you know, fairly well-off people, it was very, very expensive. So it'll be great to see, knowing how good the 440 is already, uh, how good the actual uh, M division car version of that car will be. So yeah, I'm really excited to have a go. And let's not forget that there's going to be a touring version of that car as well. And uh, who, who doesn't love a faster state car? Come on now. And John, what are you looking forward to next year? Yeah, a lot of what's been mentioned already. Uh, Enyaq is a, is a car, because I have already driven a prototype version, I'm interested to see what that translates to being is the production version. And I do think it might address some of the, even the shortcomings of the ID3 that we've been talking about, like interior quality, but let's wait and see on that. Um, the sensible stuff, I think Peugeot's 308. Peugeot have done some really interesting stuff recently, but the 308 is a bit of a legacy of the not so good cars of old so if their current ramping up of, of you know building better and better cars continues with the 308 then i think that could be quite a nice proposition to look forward to um gt86 is uh toyota gt86 is something that's interesting if you're a bit of an enthusiast but for me um if you ask me to name i'm sorry it's a bit of a speciality car the one car i can't wait to drive is the Porsche 911 GT3 because it's it's an old school car there aren't going to be these cars being built for many years to come and uh, the last GT3 is probably you know all the car I would ever want to, to own so this is a an important one for me personally okay so clearly lots to look forward to and as the awards show lots of great stuff that's already been released thank you very much for listening Thank you, Will, John, Alan, and Neil. That was the What Car Car of the Year podcast. We really hope you've enjoyed listening. Go to whatcar.com to read our reviews and get a great deal on your next new car. Buy our magazine, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and wherever you listen, watch, or read us, we'll see you next time. Insurance can be tricky to navigate, so let's make things clearer, shall we? ALA Insurance is one of the largest independent providers of GAP, warranty and other specialist insurance products for new and used cars. For instant quotes and information on the best policy for you, please visit ala.co.uk or call one of our friendly advisors for impartial advice. ALA Insurance. Protecting your investment.